Hello, everyone. My name is Andrew Gamison, and it is my privilege to welcome you, as I do each week, to the Speaking for Him podcast. Today's episode is devoted to probably the biggest news story of the week, the biggest news story of the year, and perhaps the biggest news story of the past half century. And that is that Roe versus Wade, the landmark decision that canceled all pro-life laws across the 50 states, has now fallen and the control of this important issue is restored to the state level. So now it is up to us to fight on a grassroots level to make sure that we continue to fight for life in whatever state we are in. But beyond that, it means that we need to provide support and help and care for those in crisis pregnancies. This by no means uh, states a lack of care for those people, and we as the church should rise up and live out our creed to be visitors of the fatherless and the widow and to keep ourselves unspotted by the world. That is the primary goal of the church as outlined in the book of James. As our main segment today, I will be airing an interview that I did this week with my good friend and pro-life advocate, Rebecca Kiesling. Rebecca has been on this show multiple times talking about various aspects of the pro-life movement, not the least of which is the fact that she was conceived in rape, so she has a unique perspective and a very personal perspective on this issue So I'm excited to dig into that interview with you. But before we do that, let's talk about what is going on. Well, the Supreme Court has been busy this past week, and I really want to applaud them for their pro-America stances that they've been taking. Uh, They have restored rights to people when it comes to the Second Amendment, and they have restored rights to people when it comes to uh, Roe versus Wade and giving the states back the rights, as I said, to embark upon their own approach to the pro-life abortion laws or what they will do with the issue overall. But I want to start today with Coach Joe Kennedy. He is someone that I've been following for several years, And it is because he was fired for publicly praying on the 50-yard line after football games. And I talked about him a few weeks ago because he was hoping that his case would go before the Supreme Court. Well, the good news is that happened. This is the case of Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. It has to do with um, religion in schools, prayer. Can you say a prayer by yourself? on the field. And as I understand it, Shannon, the ruling was 6-3. Tell us more. Mm -hmm. It is. And this is written by Justice Gorsuch, deciding in favor of the coach. Let me read a little bit from what they said. And remember, the coach was going to pray on the football field after the games, initially by himself. There were students who joined. There were other schools uh, that decided, we want to join. Can we come with you as well? Eventually, it turned into a situation where there were some complaints that apparently um, some parents worried that kids would feel compelled, like their playing time would depend on being out there and being with the coach. They pushed back. And then the school district told him he had to stop doing it 
or they would give him another place to pray. But he couldn't do that public place. Well, today, six to three, the Supreme Court says that his religion doesn't have to go into hiding because he is a public employee. Mm -hmm. It says respect for religious expressions is indispensable to life in a free and diverse republic, whether those expressions take place in a sanctuary or on a field and whether they manifest through the spoken word or a bowed head here. A government entity sought to punish an individual for engaging in a brief, quiet, personal religious observance doubly protected by the free exercise and free speech clauses of the First uh, Amendment. Goes on to say the only meaningful justification the government offered for its reprisal rested on a mistaken view that it had a duty to ferret out and suppress religious observances, even as it allows comparable secular speech. The Constitution neither mandates nor tolerates that kind of discrimination. They say Mr. Kennedy is entitled to summary judgment on his First Amendment claims. The judgment of the Court of Appeals is reversed. This is a 6-3 to three win for this coach. Okay, let's have a brief history lesson here on the First Amendment. The First Amendment says that the government shall not establish a religion or pro- prohibit the free exercise thereof. For a lot of people on the left today... They think that means any mention of religion is out. But if you understand the history of the colonies and the reasons why we came here and established the United States of America, you will understand that that is not, in fact, the case. As a matter of fact, the only mention in history of the separation of church and state in an an official or quasi-official document is actually in a letter from Thomas Jefferson to a lady who was worried about the United States choosing another state church because when the pilgrims came over to America and when the colonists sought to establish America and its freedoms, one of the things they were fighting against is King George because he established that the Church of England was the only true and official church. And so the founders wanted to assure us that they were not going to choose a church or denomination for us. They were going to say that freedom of religion was an important component of what it meant to be an American. So in essence, what we have with the Establishment Clause is a promise that we're not going to choose a national denomination as a country, but rather that we are going to embrace religious freedoms. It is not a license to remove all mentions of God or religion from society. So that that's the first thing I want to say. And then the establishment of religion, and then the second part is prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So when you tell me that I can't pray in, in a public situation, you are prohibiting my free exercise. And I really appreciate that the justices in this instance, six to three, sided with religious liberty. The thing that I often go back to is what is the worst thing that's going to happen if someone is influenced to follow the God of the Bible? I I think about this in terms of the Ten Commandments battle that we had a decade or two ago when they started removing the Ten Commandments from many different official government buildings and Justice Roy Moore was a figurehead in that fight But I always thought, well, what's the worst thing if someone looks up at the Ten Commandments and says, what is that? I mean, if they started 
trying to follow them and trying to live their life by them, their lives might be better than they are right now. So what's the worst thing about that? So I'm just so grateful that Joe Kennedy uh, took the time to fight for this because here's the thing, folks. We have been in a culture that basically tells us that if you are a publicly run entity, anything having to do with God is off the table. And the Constitution actually guarantees that that's not the case. But in order to preserve that right, we need to have people that are willing to stand up and say, no, this is my right and I'm not going to take this laying down. And I know there are some people that would say, just live a quiet life, don't worry about taking a stand. But there are many countries where you can't take a stand for liberty. But here in the United States, we have a process through which to do that, and that is the court process. So I'm very grateful that the justices made this decision. And now we move to the biggest decision of the last 50 years, as I mentioned earlier. The case regarding Roe versus Wade is now in. Mm-hmm. All right. So this is the this is the case that involves Roe v. Wade established 49 years ago. The decision is out. It's been issued by Justice Alito and Roe v. Wade, according to our reports from the U.S. Supreme Court and our own Shannon Bream, is that Roe v. Wade has been overturned and the question of abortion has been returned to the states. It's been 50 years since that landmark, uh, landmark Supreme Court ruling, and conservatives in government and in law have been working for 50 years to overturn it. And this is the live reaction now, in real time, outside the U.S. Supreme Court in our nation's capital. What you're seeing there are people who are uh, overjoyed about the decision in this particular shot here. Um, and then you also have people who are obviously going to be dismayed about this. Uh, this uh, leak happened about 56 days ago or so, 55 days ago, and they've been waiting for this. We do have some uh, great team coverage for you. We believe, uh, Shannon Bream, are you available to us now? I am. And um, as you know, we now get these by computer. In the old days, we would get the hard copies and we would run them down the steps. But the initial first line of the read of the syllabus, which is not the actual opinion, but it is uh, the the summary of the decision. It says that Roe and Casey are overruled. And the voting uh, that we thought was together, it looks like it has stayed together. Justice Alito has authored the opinion. He is joined by Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Thomas, and Barrett. There are a couple of concurrences. The one that we're most interested in is going to be the one by the Chief Justice. And we'll see what he had to write, because we've thought all along he would not be a vote to overturn Roe. Um, but that he would be somebody who might want to try to find some middle ground. That Mississippi law, which bans most abortions after 15 weeks, um, that he would essentially probably uphold that but not want to go that extra step uh, for Roe. Um, and the court essentially says today that Roe and Casey are gone. Um, it says, we end this opinion where we began. Abortion prevents a, pre- presents a profound moral question. The Constitution does not prohibit the citizens of each state from regulating or prohibiting abortion. Roe and Casey 
arrogated that authority. We now overrule those decisions and return that authority to the people and their elected representatives. The judgment of the Fifth Circuit reversed and remanded for further proceedings. So Roe and Casey, officially, this vote is out. The votes are in. Once it's officially uh, out, you know, the leak, it was interesting, but it didn't lock these votes in. They're now officially in. And Roe and Casey, um, you can hear, I think, a lot of the pro-life groups that are out there uh, behind us at the court. They've been fighting for this um, ever since Roe. And now uh, this victory that many of them didn't think was going to be possible, some of them in their lifetimes. But based on these states that after Roe and in the, in the last couple of years have specifically passed laws they knew would go immediately to court, Mississippi was one of those. Many of the lawmakers involved said our ideal in this is to get this to the court to challenge Roe. They knew it wouldn't stand up against initial challenges or that it would be immediately in court. And so something that started a couple years ago in the state legislature has now made it here to the Supreme Court and has done what they hope to do, which is dismantle Roe v. Casey in a five to four vote. And uh, we'll look at the chief's uh, concurrence, too, to see what his language on this is. We never thought he was part of the um, of the majority, those five votes to put this together. But it'll be interesting exactly to see what he says on this. Um, but with that opinion uh, from Justice Alito, we'll see how tra- how closely this tracks with the draft. But the bottom line doesn't change. Roe and Casey have been overruled. Shannon, reading two lines from the the opinion here, quote, there is nothing in the Constitution about abortion and the Constitution does not implicitly protect the right. Here's another line. It is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives, quoting from that opinion to the Supreme Court for how the reaction is happening now live. I don't think that I will ever get sick of hearing those news stories. January 22nd, 1973 was a watershed moment in United States history when state laws from sea to shining sea were wiped clean from the books by judicial fiat of nine men in robes. And now the Supreme Court in 2022, by a five to four margin, has said that Roe v. Wade and its companion Casey ruling were not constitutional. That's where I want to start this conversation here is just the fact that, as Abraham Lincoln said, we are a people for the people, by the people, and of the people. And so any action by the justices of the Supreme Court that brings the laws of America closer to the power of its citizens is a good action. And that is the primary thing that these justices accomplished here. Now, they could have gone further and said that unborn humans are humans based on the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment basically states that all persons in the United States should be treated as full persons with all rights and privileges there too. When it was authored, they were dealing with the issue of blacks in America, primarily, who were coming off of slavery. The 13th Amendment outlawed slavery. The 14th Amendment went further and said, you have to treat them as full 
persons and citizens. So this 14th Amendment personhood clause that was actually used to save babies in the years leading up to Roe because judges said these unborn are babies and they need to be preserved, somehow the justices in 1973 found a hidden privacy clause within this amendment which allowed them to do the exact opposite and decree that abortion should be the law of the land. This in concert with Doe versus Bolton. And then the Casey decision came in 1993, basically reaffirming Roe and to my knowledge, actually expanding it somewhat. And so now we are here. I want to make it very clear. First of all, the repeal of Roe versus Wade does not mean that abortion is illegal. As a matter of fact, there are many states where abortion is very legal, and the most liberal states in our nation will continue to have hardline abortion laws, including New York and California. So it is up to us now on the grassroots level to say, we want life to be prevalent in our state. And for me, that's the state of Michigan. Now, Michigan, as we will outline more in my interview with Rebecca Kiesling, has a long and storied pro-life history. And we actually have a law in the books from 1931 essentially outlawing abortion in our state. That There's been an injunction on that law by a judge here in Michigan, and so we have to pray that that gets worked out and that the law is able to proceed because there really isn't any way to stop it from going into place because that is the law of our state. And Roe versus Wade told the federal government that they don't have a place in making this decision, at least through the courts. As I outlined a while back before the 2020 election, There's essentially three ways to make a law in the United States. You can get up a petition to put something on the ballot. You can do a constitutional amendment, which requires two-thirds of the states to agree. Or you can go through the legislative process. Roe versus Wade did none of these three. And so that is the primary reason that it was struck down. Secondarily, though, I am extremely gratified to realize that we are winning some victories on the issue of life. A couple of years ago, rumbling started that Roe versus Wade had the possibility of falling. And that caused us to discuss this issue of life like never before. States started drawing lines. The more liberal states tried to bolster their liberal laws and make them even more liberal and more deadly for the unborn. And several conservative states said, we're going to ban abortion, at least in part, because they wanted to be prepared for when Roe fell. And to my knowledge, the most pro-life state as we sit here today is Missouri. And when Roe fell, the law that was triggered by them basically outlawed every abortion. And to that I say, praise be to the Lord. I know it seems like I talk about this issue ad nauseum, uh, 
Uh, so I don't want to belabor to this point, but I just want to say this. The circumstances of a baby's conception have no bearing on its humanity. I have an uncle who once told me that the only reason I'm valuable is because my parents wanted me. But the bottom line is that I am valuable because I am made in the image of God. That is the bottom line of my value. And so I will support any law that helps to uphold that image for innocent unborn children. The next thing I want to say is to those people that say, just keep the gospel prevalent, love people, and don't worry about what's going on in your culture. To this, I say I respectfully disagree. The gospel is the most important thing, and the Speaking for Him podcast will always stand for the gospel. But we have a great privilege to live in a nation where we are able to have a say in our laws. The Bible says that when the righteous rules, the people rejoice, but when the wicked are in authority, the people groan. And we have a unique position in the United States to be able to rejoice by putting in place godly leaders, and seeing the results of their work. Now, I know there were a lot of people who were anti-Trump when he ran for president and could not cast a vote for them. And I respect you very much for making that decision. However, I cannot allow this time to pass without pointing out to you that the three judges, Gorsuch, Barrett and Kavanaugh, the Trump nominated, are the difference makers in this decision. You may have noticed that I said five to four and not six to three, and that is because Roberts actually sided with Mississippi on their uh, state law restricting abortion to anything uh, younger than 15 weeks in utero but he did not agree with overturning Roe. So he had kind of a half concurrence. So you could say that five and a half justices voted for life. I want to also speak to the fact that we need to be caring and understanding and we need to be a place of safety for those who need help. I think it's very important for churches to get back to the basics and realize that their primary purpose is not for youth group programs or new gymnasiums or new church buildings. Their primary purpose is to care for the fatherless and the widow. And if we could get back to that, I think we'd have a lot more people choosing life because they would know that they would be cared for and loved. And that's really what the Great Commission is about. We often talk about the first half of the Great Commission, uh, which is go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And uh, we are to do that. However, that's only the first half of the Great Commission. The second half of the Great Commission says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. So there's a lot in the Bible besides believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. There's also 
be fruitful and multiply. There's also uh, principles and commands on living a godly life. The Bible says to let our light so shine before men that we may glorify our Father which is in heaven. The answer to every major question is within the pages of Scripture, and if we take the time to study it out, we will be better individuals and better as a society as a result. Ultimately, abortion is an attack on the family. The family is the fundamental unit of society. So we need to make sure that we have the opinion of children that God has. And he said this, Let the little children come unto me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. So I ask you with great humility, please check your attitude toward God's most vulnerable citizens, the unborn baby. The next thing I want to address is something that the pro-abortion side is bringing up as one of their fears, quote-unquote, about abortions being illegal or limited. Many of them have been spouting the falsehood that because miscarriages are to some termed medical abortions, that you will not be able to have surgery in the event of a miscarriage because of outlawed abortion, that you will have to carry your baby within your body for the duration of the term because abortion is illegal. And I want to play for you a clip from Seth Gruber's Unaborted podcast. And if you want to hear a really good podcast solely devoted to the issue of life and how to fight for life and how to talk to people in a reasonable and measured way about these important things, I would heartily recommend this to you. This is Dr. Brent Bowles who's an OBGYN, and here's his answer to that important question. I watched Biden's speech, uh, just like you did. I was struck by the uh, disinformation he was peddling that came from ACOG, just like you were. Um, And I've seen so much disinformation on the news, on Twitter, on Facebook, from every speaking abortophile that's stepped up to a (laughs) microphone so far. Um, I've heard the same sad lies that women will die from miscarriages and ectopics because they can't get abortions anymore, totally ignoring the medical truth that taking care of a miscarriage is not an abortion and taking care of an ectopic is not an abortion. Uh, But those are scare tactics. They're fear-mongering. Uh, well, and they've been so effective with these lies, Doctor Brent, that I, yeah. I still meet pro-lifers, alleged pro-lifers, or friends of mine who I, I'm probably not very informed in the abortion wars, but they say they're pro-life, and and I'll get people saying things like this: "Hey, Seth, I just wanted to get your response. What's going to happen to women who have a tubal pregnancy if Roe v. Wade's overturned, or they live in a state that bans abortion? Are they just are they just going to die?" It's like, no, no, because a salpingectomy or a salpingostomy where you remove the baby or you remove the entire fallopian tube is not the same as an abortion. That's why it has a different surgical name. So don't worry. We're not going to leave women to die who have tubal pregnancies because abortion's banned. So it's very important for us to realize that language is important. And the reason for using the term spontaneous abortion for a miscarriage or 
considering an ectopic pregnancy and abortion because you have to have it medically taken care of is to keep the door of abortion open. There's a very clear distinction between those things, and so I just want to be very clear that when we are advocating for life, we are not advocating for you to carry around a dead baby in your uterus because abortion is illegal or limited in your particular state. I think it's very important to make that distinction, and I think we need to be very caring and compassionate, but be able to share this message with those in doubt. Uh, Because there's so much misinformation going on around, and we need to be the bearers of good information and good news. Ultimately, the gospel is what's going to set people free and set them on a path for life. Uh, Because the gospel is what informs my passion on this topic. Uh, Jesus created us to have life and to have life more abundant. And we can't have more abundant life if we don't get a good start in life. And that start happens at the moment of conception. Separate DNA, separate heartbeats, and so much other things going on. The Bible wasn't kidding when it said, You knit me together in my mother's womb. And I'm so thankful that he knit me together and that he had a purpose for me, and I believe that for you as well. The final thing I will say on this topic is another thing that the liberals like to do is they like to couch it as reproductive choice, the choice to reproduce. But the reality is that you wouldn't need an abortion if you had not already reproduced. The only reason for an abortion is to get rid of the products of reproduction. Because a baby doesn't somehow, uh, through magic, become a baby. It is a baby, and it goes through the stages of development for a baby. So I think that's very important for us to remember. The final thing I want to say before our interview today is that I got a new electric wheelchair this week, and so I want to ask for your prayers that God would help me to get used to this chair and that it would benefit me in all the ways it is intended and that he would give wisdom in potentially getting my old wheelchair fixed up a little bit so that I can keep it as a spare. Uh, Because if you've been listening to this podcast for a long time, then you probably recall me talking about my experience a couple of years ago with a loaner wheelchair, which did not go so well. All right, well, as I said, Rebecca Kiesling is an attorney, she's a pro-life advocate, and she is a product of rape, but she is very thankful for her life, and she has been on this podcast numerous times, and so I'm excited to welcome her back to the show. Uh, Before I do that, though, I want to share with you our quote of the day. Our quote of the day actually comes from Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and one interesting thing that a lot of people don't want to talk about or maybe don't know, is that Ruth Bader Ginsburg even acknowledged that Roe was bad law. And that is essentially because Roe was not law, 
and in fact was just a judicial decision um, based on the opinions of the judges in question. But here is what Ruth Bader Ginsburg actually said in 2013 about the Roe decision. She said, My criticism of Roe is that it seemed to have stopped the momentum on the side of change. She said she would have preferred that abortion rights be secured more gradually in a process that included state legislators and the courts. Ginsburg said she was troubled that the focus on Roe was on a right to privacy rather than women's rights. Roe isn't really about a woman's choice, is it, Ginsburg said. It is about a doctor's freedom to practice. It wasn't woman-centered, it was physician-centered. In those comments were made during a law school visit in 2013. The article in question is by Meredith Hengay, and it was dated May 15th, 2013. So I, I think that's a really important thing to note, too, that even the justices, if they are honest, know that as a law, Roe did not stand up. That's actually why Joe Biden ran on a promise to codify Roe into law after he was elected. And I remember thinking all the way back in 2020, if it was good law, why would he need to codify it by going through the House and the Senate? So now, without further ado, I present to you my interview with Rebecca Kiesling. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for sitting down and talking to us. I think you'll all be encouraged by what she has to say. Well, it is my privilege to once again have Rebecca Kiesling on the show. She's been on a couple of other times when we've talked about pro-life issues and we have a very exciting thing to talk about and dissect a little bit today, and that is the fall of Roe versus Wade on June 24th, 2022, a momentous day in American history and, of course, in the pro-life movement. So as we begin today, Rebecca, can you just give me your initial thoughts when you heard this decision had come down? I was absolutely thrilled. I'd been waiting for it. <laughs> and um, it was a little bittersweet because the law which protected me here in Michigan uh, is not in effect because a rogue judge issued an injunction a couple of weeks ago. I filed a, an amicus brief in the Court of Appeals in that case. And we will get into that a little bit later in the interview here. From our discussion before we came on, you had told me that you had uh, taken some time to read this decision. Now, I, I admit I didn't read the whole thing, but I read some of the highlights. So could you tell me what stuck out to you in particular about Samuel Alito's opinion on this matter, which was the majority opinion? Well, I didn't get to read the entire opinion yet. I've just been super busy with radio interviews and attended the pro-life women's conference, spoke at a rally. Um, there's been a lot going on. I started reading it, however, and I just thought it was brilliantly written. 
There's a summary at the beginning of the opinion that's like eight pages long, <laughs> kind of long for just the summary. Um, but I feel like it was well explained and he just nailed it. Well, one of the things I wanted to bring out of this is he says not only was there no support for such a constitutional right until shortly before Roe, but abortion had long been a crime in every single state. At common law, abortion was criminal in at least some stages of pregnancy and was regarded as unlawful and could have very serious consequences um, at all stages. And so this is the... This is the backdrop upon which uh, these decisions are being made. And a lot of people today are are unjustly saying that the Supreme Court had no right to do this. But I but I point to the fact that it was specifically a decision made in the Supreme Court. So Mm -hmm. it makes more sense than almost everything else that the Supreme Court does. And I feel like he wrote it in plain language so that lay people could understand it. But you're talking about you know, Supreme Court jurisprudence, they have to limit themselves uh, with what they decide because they're not a legislature. And so he set forth the rules for when you're going to interpret provisions in the Constitution to mean things when it's not expressly there. And there there are rules for doing that. You can't just decide, well, I'm going to say it means this when it's not there. And, and so he explained that and he explained that, that, you know, one of the questions is whether um, something has been like entrenched in our nation's history. And he said that it never, abortion never was. And that Roe was wrongfully decided in the first place because they weren't supposed to read anything into the constitution that's not there unless there's, you know, these rules that you got to follow. And he explained why those rules were not followed. So I thought that was just absolutely brilliant the way he explained it. Clarence Thomas went even a little further in his concurrence talking about the abuse of the 13th amendment how the 13th Amendment, which actually affirmed personhood for every American, and actually, if you go back in history, was used to support life and to reject people's appeals to the court to get abortions, was later used to, uh, be, to because of some un, unseen privacy clause, to justify abortion. So I thought that was equally brilliant. And, you know... People have every right to fear unconstitutional laws falling at the hands of the Supreme Court because the the job of the Supreme Court is to uphold the Constitution. He did amend his draft opinion, the one that was leaked. He did add some language that wasn't in the draft opinion after reading the dissents. And the dissent tried to say suggest that all kinds of laws are, or all kinds of decisions are going to be overturned now and that it's opening the door to overturn a whole slew of decisions. And he made it clear that that's actually not the case. Um, and that the big issue, the difference is that this involves uh, 
you know, ending the life of a living human being essentially is what he explained in that this is a, a, a moral issue that's not present with these other issues and that this is the, that's the difference. Absolutely. So but they were trying to say, well, all the other cases that have been decided uh, where they've, you know, found liberty interests under the 14th Amendment, you know, all these cases are going to be overturned. And he made it clear that, that that's not going to happen, that this is unique because you're talking about, you know, ending the life of living. And it, and it is unique for that purpose. That's a very important point to make as we continue this discussion. Um, so one of the things that I hear coming out of this decision is people are kind of spreading the misinformation, if not, not all outright lie that people are not going to be allowed to get the proper medical care in the case of a miscarriage because of this decision. What do you have to say about that? There was not a single case prior to Roe versus Wade where that ever happened. Nobody wants to see women die. There's not a single case where um, a doctor or a woman, you know, were even charged with a crime for saving the life of the mother. That is very true. And there is a difference, is there not, between saving the life of a mother and directly causing the death of an unborn baby. Those are two very different things. It's like the difference between homicide and self-defense. There's a difference. Oh, absolutely. Either, you know, if you commit murder uh, blatantly because you want to murder someone, or if you commit murder because they're causing danger to you or someone you love, those are two different things. And, and people like to muddle them. One of the arguments made, at least in Texas, was the fact that some of the drugs that are used um, for treatment after abortion are the same drugs used for treatment after a miscarriage. Um, And so doctors were unsure whether the law allowed them to prescribe them. Now, I would think that a doctor that has um, discernment skills, because that's one thing that we desperately lack in our country, I think that a doctor that has discernment skills would know the difference, but I could also see the pro-abortion side kind of holding this over people's heads and saying, now that you outlawed these forms of abortion or now that these states have these abortion stances, I can't even treat people with a miscarriage and actually doing it out of spite. But as far as it being legally irresponsible or legally wrong for them to treat women with miscarriage, I don't think we see that at all. Right. You mentioned Michigan briefly as we were coming on because that's where we both reside. And so that's our reality. So where does uh, the pro-life law stand here in Michigan? Um, I had thought for a long time that there was a 1972 law that dealt with this issue, but I've been trying to do research and haven't found anything. Michigan was founded in 1846. Immediately there was an 1846 abortion ban that is still on the books, okay? But the problem is that the language was archaic. There had been, you know, developments and uh, understanding of, of unborn human life. And um, 
and, you know, medical advancements and the language had been changed that people were using. And so in 1931, they added a new statute, never repealed the old one, um, but they sort of, it was to update things. So the old statute talked about whether there was a quick fetus. And the new statute just had, it was a complete abortion ban. Abortion had always been illegal through the history of Michigan. In 1963, there was a new Michigan constitution approved by the people. And the attorney general in the constitution is directed that if there are any laws pre-existing on the books prior to the approval of the new constitution in 1963, the attorney general's duty was to, I'll give you choices, A, go rogue and refuse to enforce the law, B, refuse to defend a case <laughs> where, where you know, the attorney general sued regarding the law, you know, or C, was their constitutional mandate duty to consult with the legislature? Which one do you think it was? Hmm. I'm guessing C. Yes. And it's in the constitution. That's it. If she, if, you know, Dana Nessel, our current attorney general, thought that the pre-existing law from 1931 and from 1846 um, somehow were in conflict with the 1963 Constitution, her sole responsibility and authority was to consult with the legislature. That's it. Advise them. That's it. Um, but what's interesting, what happened after 1963, and this is why the Supreme Court of Michigan has consistently found that there's not a right to an abortion under the Constitution, is that the people of Michigan, not, not only since 1963, was, you know, which is almost 60 years, 59 years, not only did, did not one attorney general like consult with the legislature to try to get this changed, to try to repeal the, the prior laws, the 1846 and 1931 there was a proposal B to amend the Michigan Constitution to find a right to an abortion. And the people of Michigan, over 70%, I think it was like 72% rejected that. Rejected that. And then two months later, they were told by the United States Supreme Court, too bad, you're going to have an abortion. Thank you for that clarification. So it was a ballot proposal. Yes, and it was rejected. Because my, my dad had told me about that for years and he said that he remembered his mom voting on it, voting against it, obviously. 
Um, yeah. And but I couldn't. I wasn't a, life, but it was yeah, against she, she against the against amending the constitution to find a right for abortion. Legalizing. I can't recall now specifically it was to actually amend the constitution or just to legalize abortion, but it was rejected by the people. Yes. And, and it's interesting that that was proposal B because when I first came on board at right to life of Michigan, we fought against proposal B, which was to legalize assisted suicide in Michigan. Right. And so that yeah, was, yeah. I remember that campaign. I worked yes. hard on that campaign. That was the first big pro-life issue that I was involved in, and I've been passionate about it ever since. But so, so thank you for that clarification. I think it's so important for people to be clear on what actually is going on because there's so much misinformation floating around. In the mid 1800s, you know, like like. Alito explained in the in the opinion, the common law made abortion illegal, but there was this movement in the mid 1800s to ban abortion all over the country. And he he mentions that. But do you know um, what that movement was called to ban abortion? At the time, it was called the physicians movement because it was physician led. Because they believe that abortion was bad for women, that abortion harms women. And so it was actually a physician-led movement. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I actually dug up a quote uh, earlier today um, that I'm going to use in the intro to this podcast about how that was Ruth Bader Ginsburg's position was that Roe was poorly was poorly done as a matter of jurisprudence because it was actually uh, talking. It actually emphasized more the physician's right to practice abortion than it did a woman's right to abortion. And she even said in that particular interview, which took place in two, 2013, that she wished that the woman's right to abortion had taken a slower, more legislative journey to legalization, which makes all the sense in the world, at least from a legal standpoint, not a moral standpoint, of course from a legal standpoint, but it's interesting that she cited that herself. And, and the modern efforts by the, in, in blue states, by, you know, abortion rights proponents, legislators, is to uh, expand abortion so that it can be performed by non-physicians. Because, you know, they know that there's a lot of physicians who don't want to do abortions and they feel like there's not enough people going around doing abortions. So it's no longer about making it safe. Well, and I don't think it really ever was because I seem to remember that one of my first campaigns that I worked on with Right to Life other than the proposal B was this campaign to strengthen healthcare laws when it comes to abortion clinics, because they said, if you're going to consider yourself a healthcare facility, then you have to meet minimum healthcare requirements. And a lot of them didn't. So by putting forth those measures in um, the legislature, they were able to shut down many of them just because they didn't meet the, the standard for medical facility. Right, but they don't want any regulation. No, absolutely. They don't, they, don't. they don't care about whether it's safe. 
It used to be that they want it to be safe, legal, and rare. Now they just want it to be legal, period. They don't care. Yeah, they. I mean, well, they don't even pretend that it's not a baby because I remember that used to be the biggest argument when I was growing up. It's not a baby until such and such a time, and and we can't define exactly when that time was because that's one of the, the weaknesses of Roe as a legal document too is they said – Abortion is legal to the age of viability, but we're not going to define what the age of viability is. Could you just define for our audience what exactly happened with the fall of Roe versus Wade? Because I know some people think that that means that abortions are illegal everywhere, um, and that's not the case. They didn't recognize personhood. So they left it to the states. And it's a shame because the 14th Amendment says that no state shall deprive a person of their right to life, liberty or property without due process process of law, and no state shall deny a person equal protection laws. And it's like with the issue of slavery, you can't just toss it to the states and let the states decide. And, uh, and, you know, unfortunately that's what they did. Um, So you have, now it's pretty much along red state, blue state lines. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of red states have blue judiciaries. They have blue Supreme Courts. And, you know, there's a number of states like Iowa and North Dakota where the, their Supreme Court found that there's a right to an abortion under their state constitution. There's articles every day that you can find the latest on what states have passed laws because there's been a flurry of states that are meeting to, um, and some of them have already adjourned because they're part-time legislatures, but having special meetings to change the law in their state to ban abortion. You know, the reason why a lot of them weren't doing it before is because under section 1983 of the U S code, uh, if you sue, for your civil rights being violated, which is what the other side always argues that uh, abortion bans violate their civil rights. The um, federal law says that uh, the court will award all your attorney fees. And so legislatures didn't want to be funding Planned Parenthood because that's happened where they were ordered to pay a ton of money in attorney fees to the ACLU, you know, which is just ends up funding the abortion industry. So, you know, who wants to do that? Right. And so that had a chilling effect where a lot of states were afraid to do anything. Some states went ahead and did abortion bans anyway, like Kentucky, and they took it up on appeal. And Mississippi obviously took it up on appeal. Ohio agreed, their attorney general agreed to stay their heartbeat case pending the outcome of the Kentucky case and the outcome of Dobbs. Now it's going into an, into effect, but they decided with the ACLU, they came up with an agreement not to try the case, not to, you know, go forward with the case because they didn't want to be, the attorney general didn't want to end up funding the abortion movement, which is understandable, right? Uh, so now you have all of these legislatures that are poised to, to move. Now we are in what I like to call a purple state because we have a very red legislature throughout the state yeah. of Michigan. 
But we have a Democratic governor and a Democratic attorney general who basically said we're not going to enforce this law. Now, they don't have a right to say that. But what do you see coming? How do you see this injunction resolving itself? On on top of it, unfortunately, right now, our um, Supreme Court is essentially blue. It used to be red for many, many years. It's supposed to be nonpartisan. But look, they get endorsed at at the Republican state convention, the Democratic state convention, you know, is um, where they're selected and to basically run for the party, even though it's like nonpartisan, but it's it's not in Michigan. It's really not. Um, and so we we currently they have a four to three majority of liberals on the Michigan Supreme Court. Unfortunately, but we do have an election coming up in November and there's a um, conservative Michigan Supreme Court justice and a liberal Michigan Supreme Court justice that are up for re-election in November, as well as our governor, attorney general, secretary of state, and all of the House and Senate, I think. Yeah, and, and that's what's so interesting this time around, because I know in the past, like during the Granholm era, at least she had the check and balance of a Republican attorney general for much of that time. Um, and now we have a Democrat as attorney general and governor. So that gives them a little bit more, uh, leverage, but she, we've known from the past couple of years that she's not real good at listening to the legislature anyway. So, but we're going to trust our Supreme court to do the right thing. I'm worried that our Supreme court will find a right to an abortion under the Michigan constitution just because they're liberal. Well, that's definitely something to pray for as we uh, continue to fight this fight, because this was not the end of the battle. This was really the beginning of the battle, but it just gives the states a lot more uh, leverage to be able to do what they feel is right in the context of their state. And I, I know I heard another conservative podcaster say that she wouldn't uh, advocate for a federal uh, ban uh, on abortion because she thinks the states need to have more power than the federal government. In general, I would say yes, but in matters of life and death, I would absolutely advocate for for federal adjudication of this issue because um, a baby a baby is a baby no matter what state they're in, no matter what the circumstances of their life. And as we've talked about on this podcast before. You are a product of rape yourself. And so for people to say that uh, outlawing abortion, especially in Missouri's case, which basically outlawed every abortion for any cause, they're saying, well, they're not sensitive to people that are victims of rapists. So that's just awful. Um, And I know you've said this before, but can you just tell me what you would say to them? Well, I ask people, you know, who support abortion in cases of rape. Um, would you support a law in the Me Too movement day and age? Would you support a law which would authorize alleged rape victims to pay someone to kill her rapist or just her innocent child? I mean, that's what abortion is. They're paid assassins. They're hired hitmen. And imagine someone said that a woman should just be able to say rape, And it would be legal for her 
to pay someone to go kill her rapist. You know, no right to trial, no due process, no Miranda, like nothing. Just like that, she's allowed to hire someone to have you killed. I mean, can you imagine all the men being like, whoa, 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 slow down, you know? Um, But that's what abortion is, except you're killing the innocent child. Just say rape, and you can pay someone to kill your baby. The U.S. Supreme Court said, by the way, rapists don't deserve the death penalty. And in the second case of... um, that was, that was, by the way, um, Coker v. Georgia. And in Kennedy v. Louisiana, the court said that even for child molesters, it's cruel and unusual punishment. So how does an innocent child deserve the death penalty? How did I deserve to die for the crime of my biological father? He's got to live his life. He's never spent a day in jail like most rapists. But I would have been killed for his crime? That's barbaric. In a civilized society, you don't do that. You punish offenders, not innocent children. I think the largest problem is we've dehumanized the situation because people just think don't think of babies in the womb as babies. They separate them from humanity. So then if, you know, because if I propose this, this scenario to someone and I said somebody can arbitrarily decide that you should die because you're inconveniencing them, they would say absolutely not. But that's exactly what we say when we say that abortion is okay. It's just that we can't see the babies in question, so we don't think about them that way. And I, I think that's the, the single biggest thing, because what, what makes me upset too is the argument, well, I'm personally pro-life, but I would never impose that on someone else. And I know at least one of the four rhino governors I forget which one. There's four liberal Republicans that are up, that say they that say they will uphold the virtues of Roe in their state, and one of them said that he was personally pro-life, but he doesn't believe it's a decision that he can make for someone else. But the the argument I've been making recently is if the abolitionists of the Civil War era had that thought process, then they wouldn't have outlawed slavery. The Thirteenth Amendment would not have happened unless People stood up, largely men, by the way, and white men, regardless of what people think of our culture, and said slavery is unacceptable. And that's the way it has to be with abortion. It can't be either or because it's a moral issue. It's not ambiguous. So as we end today, um, what are some specific things that we can do to continue this discussion? What do you think the legislature is going to do in our state? Are they just going to wait and see with the 1931 law? Are they going to readdress this issue? What do you think? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if they're going to intervene. Um, We'll see what happens at the court of appeals and the Michigan Supreme court. But, you know, there is that petition drive circulating and people need to be sure not to sign it. Don't sign. Is there still a petition drive? They say it's for reproductive freedom and that, um, you know, it'll protect things like um, uh, birth control and prenatal care. I mean, it sounds good, but what they don't realize is that, number one, this is about abortion. Number two, it would have, um, you know, non-physicians be able to do abortions. It would um, have... uh, 
no parental consent, taxpayer funding, and it would uh, also allow minors to have a sex change without their parents' knowledge paid for. It's just on and on. There's so many bad things in it. You know, and it talks about instead of pregnant women, it talks about pregnant people. Because in their mm-hmm. mind, you know, anybody can get pregnant. Men get yeah, pregnant. This is so important to make sure that you know what you're signing. Yeah. Because they do couch it in very positive language. And, you right, know. And it makes it sound like you're not protected, like, to have, to be able to have access to birth control. Like, you're not protected to get prenatal care. Like, are you kidding me? Well, mm-hmm. one of the biggest problems is we just think that the government needs to control all of this. And that's what happens because you, you think that this idea of living in America means the government needs to give me all of this. And so if the government's not giving me all of this, then they're depriving me instead of saying I have personal responsibility. That's what our Liberty in this country is based on is the personal responsibility to do the right thing. So yes, please be aware. What, what was the name of the petition or the name of the act that they're trying to act? If you go to rtl.org, Right to Life in Michigan's website, um, they explain all of the de- you know the dangers in detail. All right. Well, I will direct people to rtl.org then. I did work for Right to Life for a number of years. Uh, they are a solid, reputable organization. Um, so go to rtl.org. Find out about that women's rights uh, petition. Make sure that you advise. Not women's your- rights. Remember. People get pregnant, not women. People. <laughs> it's amazing how quickly the narrative changes, right? Because our, our new Supreme Court justice couldn't tell us what a woman is. And then right. when Roe versus Wade falls, it's an egregious attack on women's rights. Yeah. I thought it was people. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Is there any specific way that we can pray for you today? Uh, I, I mean, I just pray that that 1931 law gets upheld. Is is there a limit of time on the injunction, or is it kind of just sitting there in limbo waiting for someone to? Okay. All right. Well, we'll definitely pray that the 1931 law gets upheld. Again, the 1972 issue that I referred to in the beginning of this episode was actually a uh, proposal on uh to amend the constitution that thank god did not go through but that was a good point of clarification thanks again rebecca for being here with us today i really appreciate you taking the time yep thank you many thanks again to rebecca keesling for taking the time to join me for an interview this week what a wonderful privilege it was to talk to you about this watershed moment in american history seeing Roe versus Wade go down by a 5-4 vote in the Supreme Court on June 24th, 2022. I feel so blessed that God has answered this prayer, but I want to remind you that it is just the beginning of the battle for life. May I encourage you with the words of Moses right before he went to the top of the mountain to die because he was not allowed to enter the promised land. He said to the children of Israel, Choose life that you and your descendants may live. 
That is my final word to you this week. Choose life and keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at Speaking for Him. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review.